One of the ways that I describe growing up in Woodstock is like we didn't have a blockbuster, but we had two alternative video stores. But so like I, I grew up on like trauma and like all these like French foreign films, like stuff that was not shot to be amazing, but shot to be as good and as passionate as it could be. I could watch Sergeant Kabuki Man a hundred times and not because I think it should like win an Oscar because I, I just love it. When I'm working on a project that I know is not like, you know, a BAFTA nominee in the making. I like to think of it as a potential trauma piece, a potential for me to make something that somebody else is going to love. Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. Michael Surix is a video game guy. He founded Bright Skull Entertainment Group, casting and directing talent across VO, Face, and PCAP, and is also pretty well known for pushing the envelope in dialogue and voice performance with a penchant for ensemble performance capture. I gotta tell you, as a voice actor, I really love ensemble work. (laughs) Who doesn't? (laughs) Right? Michael's game projects include Just Cause 4, Bioshock 2, The Vanishing of Ethan Carter, N++, Masquerade, Song and Shadows, Anmyoji Arena, and... Tacoma, just to name a few. He regularly speaks at industry trade shows, including GDC, the Game Developers Conference every year in San Fran, and Game SoundCon. And he works on committees for the Game Audio Network Guild and Game Actors Voice Coalition. He's a great guy to know if you're a voice actor or if you work in the video games industry. So let's talk voiceover, Michael Surix. Let's do it. Michael, how the heck are you? Hey, Randy, how's it going, man? It's great. It's fantastic. I'm, uh, I was telling Brian all about the, the workshop stuff that you and I have done. We need to do more, man. And uh, just how great it is watching, you know, for me watching you because you have a completely different approach than I do. And it's just, you're just one of those people that I love to watch because it's like, wow, I would never have thought of saying that or doing that. And there's just so much even as a director, just to learn from that, because it's like, man, he's just, that's an interesting approach. And and I just love that about you. And you're just, you know, you're just kind of you. Well, thank you. I, uh, you know, I worked hard to, uh, to become me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I appreciate it. Uh, it took me a long time. <laughs> or actually no time at all. It but took it, me yeah, just the, the it took me it's... just the right amount of time. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> I also remember when uh, when uh, you first were talking about striking out on your own. You're like, man, I don't know if I should do this or not. And you know, I just remember you know saying, really, if not you, then who? You've got you've got all the tools to do it. Just so, so yeah, but that, that job at the sanitation I, department was yeah. open, so you know. So how's that, how's that working? Hey, out? you don't don't knock it, man. Those are good jobs. <laughs> I, I know I know you're kidding, but uh, when I was growing up, um, like one of the best jobs that uh that i was looking at uh like a prospect in my hometown was uh, was a garbage collector because you made a salary and a pension and uh you pretty much uh were done with your day by uh by daybreak and spent the rest of the time just hanging out at the dump watching tv <laughs> that is true it's not all bad yeah at least at least where i grew up but uh but yeah no i'm uh, I'm, I'm thankful to be where i am and uh to have accomplished what i have and built what i have uh or at least had the opportunity to build what i have so and uh and yeah randy i remember i remember having those early conversations with you before we founded bright skull and uh started building it up and 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 keep growing and growing and growing it's interesting because you know we've all obviously we've all started our own businesses at some point 
And, you know, and I just watching you and listening to you, it's like, oh, you can totally do this, you know, and, and you know, you, you know, the creatives that can't, right? I do. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that was more rhetorical, but I probably should have given yeah, more yeah. pause yeah. there. But, uh, but yeah, 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 I, yeah. <laughs> a little we, anxious on the answer there, Michael. We, we can add in a little <laughs> pause. <laughs> there will be no editing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something I never knew. Did you go to L.A. like the typical I'm chasing the dream man or did, did something else take you from there? Because you came from because you, know, you came from upstate, upstate New York, right? I did. And uh, and uh, in fact, it was a roundabout way of getting to L.A. Um, you know, growing up in New York, you're kind of raised with the belief that Los Angeles is the uh, is the antithesis of good. Coming out here was kind of a big step for me. Um, but I didn't. I didn't start uh, directly in LA. I, I actually started out in uh, in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And what drew me down to Los Angeles was um, while I was at 2K. Over the course of the years, I realized that I was spending more than half my year down here in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and that I was enjoying my life better here. Like um, I just enjoyed the lifestyle and the and the the community and the people here uh, were a better culture fit for me. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the traffic and the well, traffic. you know, to be fair, <laughs> to be fair, I definitely uh, I was definitely living a uh, a very ideal uh, Los Angeles life because like I was living like um, on the beach and uh, oh, I was working so at a all studio. Your business, work and life was was all west of the four hundred five. It huh? was all Santa Monica and Venice, and oh. so like I would like you know like jog on the beach in the morning, and then and I say jog, but I was I was I marathoning. Did that my but, second time in L.A. My first yeah. time I was a valley rat, and the second time I I was able to live live and work west of the four hundred five. And and you're right, yeah, life is completely different if you can figure out how to set it all up that way right so when we were shopping for houses and a big a big impetus for the move was that um my oldest was getting to be school aged so we wanted to be down here before that happened sure and of course when your target for moving to la and where you're going to live becomes schools you quickly start in the things that you know like Mm -hmm. oh yeah the beach in santa monica and then you're like wait why is this school so bad (laughs) And (laughs) and then you just start moving Moving, moving uh, in a decreasing uh, scale of cool until you arrive in Woodland Hills. And not to say that it's not cool here, but it's literally the hottest place in L.A. It's it's 120 <laughs> degrees all summer. Yeah. Uh, the air does not move here. In fact, all of the city's air gets trapped here by the topography of, uh, of Los Angeles in the valley. <laughs> so I go five minutes down the 101 and it's like a cool ocean breeze up from Malibu, but by my house. It's just, you know, motionless desert air. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, good time. And that is why they call it the Valley. Yeah, it's uh, definitely. But it's voice actor Valley, and I do love it here. Like, um, that's you know, true. You throw a rock and you hit a, a, a talented voice actor, and that's a, that's a huge plus for being here. Sure. Um, I don't mean to diminish the, the talent, but the, the sheer volume of... of incredible voice talent within like a you know 15 minute uh with traffic uh range which is you know 200 feet of my studio is uh is quite large so can't can't discount that so what have you been seeing in the voiceover uh especially voiceover for video games business recently that's been a change from uh the past few years I mean, the stock answer is going to be that when I started, there's a, the the perception that, oh, games have voiceover. I had no idea. And that was from within the industry and without as well. Yep. Obviously, like it's changed to be more um, 
there's a greater knowledge base uh, within the industry now. I wouldn't say a great knowledge base, but a greater knowledge base uh, within the industry. Consumer-wise, most people assume that there's going to be voiceover, and especially in like um, from AAA down to like a double A, like mid-level project, the expectation is that there's going to be voiceover. Whereas, uh, you know, when I when I first started out, that was not the case. What was the first game you did? The first game I did was for a device called the N-Gage, and I don't know if anybody remembers that fun. It was a mobile device that was around or pre uh, the Sidekick era, and it was like basically looked like like a three-quarter scale TurboGrafx-16 that was primarily a, a phone device. But it was more. It was mm-hmm. marketed specifically for mobile gaming. So it had like analog controls. It looked like a. It kind of looked like um like a DS in a way. Okay. Yeah, I made a game for that uh, called Fifty Castles with a Canadian like indie developer. Mm-hmm. It was fun. I, I had a lot of fun making it. So um like I got like local theater actors in Manhattan to come and do all the voices. There was you know the sassy lady and the Scotsman and the you know, like, like, like engaging and cartoony. Um, and it was, it was, it was just fun. Uh, and I had, I laughed through the whole session. I mean, in a good way, you know, like, not like, oh my God, you're terrible. Ha ha. It was, uh, <laughs> those are fun too. I don't know about other directors or, uh, or other sessions for the most part, but a lot of our sessions like, uh, involve a lot of like camaraderie and laughter and, um, giving the actor that safe space to experiment in by letting them know that it's okay through your own happiness. Absolutely. Well, yeah, you have to know it's safe and they have to know that, you know, you're willing to show your goofy side or your vulnerable side or whatever. I think you absolutely have to do that. And by that same account, though, too, I've seen people uh, that I was either shadowing or mentoring um, blow a session by, after a really deep, dramatic read, trying to lighten the mood and crack a joke. And it's like, that's not the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, give it a minute. That's that's, that's when you call, uh, like, like you you put the excuse on you, like, that was really good. We got what we needed. Um, You know, comfort, comfort, comfort. I have to use the bathroom. Or or yeah, something like no, that. Absolutely. I mean, as a as a voice actor, it's really important to feel that there's empathy coming from the other side of the glass. Because otherwise you feel left out. Um you, you feel abandoned, quite honestly. You're in something that's really intense and very deep and all that, and then all of a sudden the talkback voice comes on and goes, Ah oh, yeah, that was okay. Um give us another take. You're like, what? Yeah. Right. What? Can you can can you can you be with me a little bit here? Did I suck so bad that you? Can't, there's no feeling. There's no anything. Or is this just? Uh, am I tying up too much of your time today? I, I all those things start to run through your head as a voice actor, and you're like, geez, it's just. So I've done a little bit of of uh, talent directing in my time, and that was always a really important thing from my perspective. Um, directing talent was to make sure that you mimic and empathize with what the voice actor is doing with the character to be able to set the, it sets a tone. It sets an overall tone. That's really important to the performance. I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. Couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, you got to read the room. It's, it's an yeah. essential skill. Yeah. And I think to your point of whenever you have something like that, you have to, I don't even like the whole talkback system in a sense. You know, if, if when I can, I just try to make sure that I'm communicating all the time. I mean, even being on the other side of the glass, one of the things that I absolutely hate because I just feel when the actor does a take and all of a sudden there becomes a discussion in the room and nobody's letting the actor in on that. 
That to me seems really maddening, and I always have this feeling like I should just push that talk back button down um, and let me yeah, hear yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, as an actor, yeah. there's well, there's <laughs> yeah. I mean, like yes and no. You're right. The many yeah. wonderful reasons for the yes on this. The yes on this is obviously like yes, I want collaboration. I want everybody to be talking to each other. I want the actor to not be sitting there getting into their own head while they see a bunch of dummies like flapping their lips on the other side of the glass. Exactly. Right? That's the most important thing to me. But as a director, you have to remember that on the other side of the glass are not just, um, you know, your engineer and your producer, but also your clients. So you have a service to right. them as well. Absolutely. One of the things that I do uh, at the start of a session especially if I know if, if there are clients sitting in and it's a, an actor that I haven't worked with before is I'll usually give them the option be like hey look there's going to be a lot of like Skype chatter or like there's going to be a lot of um, discussion um, if I know the clients well I can gauge you know how participatory they're going to want to be or how mm -hmm. involved in the, in the decision making process they, they are and I usually give the actor that choice like hey would you rather like you know me mute you during those or do you want to like listen to what's going on mm -hmm. um and you'd be surprised a lot of people choose to be like you know when you if, if they're going to be chatty then i'm just going to like mm -hmm. uh, be reading ahead in the script most people come to the sessions with uh with script knowledge though but sure. if you are opening up the talk back like that you're also introducing multiple points of reference for the talent that's so if at any true. point yeah. they they deem that like oh the writer has the most input or the or the writer is the person that i want to talk to the most and they'll start having that conversation directly with them and it also cuts you, the director, out of that circuit. Mm -hmm. You want to encourage creative um, collaboration. Mm -hmm. You want to build a good team. But part of building a good team is also um, establishing strong hierarchy and leadership. Cutting out that talk back and having you be the uh, sole voice of of logic is fine. Mm -hmm. In looping them into the creative conversation is great. Though it's not a, it's not an either or thing. Like you have to check well, the vibe. Well, no, you're 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 probably right. It's not either or. But I think some of that gets mitigated by setting up immediately at the front of the session. If it's not somebody you've worked with before, that here's the chain of command. Mm. You know, the the actor does not need to be hearing from five different people. Mm. I don't care how strong your opinion is. I don't care if you, the writer, or whomever it is, is going to be the one driving this session. If I'm there as director, then let me direct. Yes, and. I don't care if my only job, this isn't what I, what I want, but if my only job becomes literally interpreting what you say to the actor and it's not my direction, not my input, that's still the path that it needs to There's take. There's that mix though, right? So it is helpful that you're not just staring at a room that's talking for you know, 20, 30, 40 seconds and you're going, what the hell? Because it does allow you to get inside your head, as you said before, Michael. But on the flip side, there is the danger of you hold the talk back button down and now as an actor, you know, the first thing you want to do is you want to try and please and, and, and take that direction. Right. And if you're getting mixed direction from six different people in the room at the same time, mm -hmm. it does get a little bit confusing. Yeah. And you do have to stop at some point and go, OK, so now, Michael, you're the talent director. <laughs> which which way do you want me to go with it? Right. Exactly. So I think that there's there's those opportunities that the actor can actually help that out as well. Well, that's why I'm saying you really have to evaluate each individual situation and, and run with sure. it. So um, 
I'll find myself starting sessions with uh, with closed talkback for the most part. And then, like, if there is a long wind, a conversation that I see is going to be longer, like um, we're discussing word pronunciation or especially if we're discussing something completely off topic, that's when I latch the talk back. But if it's like um, if it's performance based or if it's like uh, or if it's interpreting the script or things like that, I take those as notes for me. Not for the actor. Mm-hmm, right. So that, I think that's that, that's really how I gauge it. Is like, is the note for me, or is it for the, or is it for the actor? I think of myself as a gate. Right. Is this information that needs to go to the actor? If yes, push talk back. If no, keep it closed. Whenever possible, I like to direct from inside the booth, especially yeah. for ensemble yep, sessions. Yep, yep. Um, that's the perfect excuse. You know, you got your headphones. And the only time mm-hmm. a client is talking to you to you is through the headphones. And it's great. You know, like uh, I can have those conversations with the client. Uh, I can turn to the glass and um, and the actors can hear my side of it. If I want them mm-hmm. looped in, it's very easy to just punch it from the headphones to the PA or to uh, or if mm-hmm. I know it's going to be a longer, more uh, more high level conversation, just bring the clients into the room. It's It's that easy. Mm-hmm. Do you have a theater background? Um, as an actor, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what I meant. Well, that's what I yeah, meant. Yeah, uh, I started. Um, it's a long but foundational story. <laughs> I'll give you the. I'll give you the, the 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 summary. How long is this podcast anyway? Long story, medium. They uh they were having auditions. Um, and there was this girl that I liked in seventh grade. Isn't that uh, how we all she was got into out. theater? I mean, I. That, no, that's how we all got that, into bands. That's how we right, all got into band music. Theater, that's how I got into something. It, it always has yeah, to do right. with a girl bands, I like, yeah, right. and yeah, I fell in love with theater um, through this. Uh, oh my god, my audition was ridiculous. I, I I didn't come from a musical home, so I didn't know any music to audition with. But we had a piano that was my uh, my sister's that I, I loved and I, I played all the time. Um, and we had some old sheet music uh, with with lyrics to songs I had never heard before. So <laughs> so what did you so audition I with? Taught my, I auditioned with Blue Moon, uh, and I taught All myself right. well, uh, taught myself through Sheet uh, how to play Blue Moon. That's not bad. I gave it to the accompanist, and uh, and she played it in a tempo that I had never tried before. <laughs> 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 I was way off because it was like the you know the, the cheat book sure. version, so it was just melody sure. and chords. I auditioned with but, Rubber uh, Ducky one time. You know that's not a bad one. Uh, it's it's better than Star Spangled Banner or, uh, or or the uh, the the alphabet yeah. song. So there you go. See, I would go the other. I would go the other way, Randy. So what are, what are you going to try it with? Well, I thought I'd start with Tornado. Okay, out. So again, I'm giving you a lot of exposition. This is a quick little thing. Uh, but uh, the, it's uh, called Inagata de Vida. Yeah. I'd like to do it for you now. <laughs> right. <laughs> So uh, so they posted up the uh, they posted up the the parts and uh, and I had gotten the lead. I was I was Daddy Warbucks in Annie and I was uh, well I mean you know not the lead. I couldn't I couldn't be Annie. But, <laughs> well, you um, could. It was a pretty small uh, pool. <laughs> it, it was uh, you know it was as close as I could get. But uh, but anyway yeah I, I I had never been a part of anything before. I had never had like a group activity before, especially one where like you know people wanted to see me succeed. Uh, and so it was um, it was life changing. Yeah, that's to me like that's my background. That's what theater is. Theater is um, it's a community and where you can express yourself and and be loved and be uh, supported. Well, that that makes so much sense as what as to why you're so into ensemble performance because that's what you that's what yeah, you which know. Which is why I asked yeah. which is why I asked the question yeah. if you had a theater background. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Well, why did you not stay an actor? <laughs> uh, the, the the simple truth is um, I 
did not stay an actor because my life decisions uh, in my teenage years and uh, and 20s um, were unhealthy. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. I got more into the into the music side of things Um which then, you know, it, it, I, to be honest with you and looking back, I would have been a middling actor. So it wasn't something that I would have excelled at anyway. Um, however, yeah, I'm a middling actor and yeah, I, I, there's probably better ways to make a living, but <laughs> it's I, fun. I don't know you that well. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> uh, but I can only speak for I can only speak for my own path. And um, I know that I wouldn't have uh, have been as happy as an actor uh, as I eventually found in uh, in directing. So still, how did you get back to acting in, in as a director? <laughs> like I, mean, I said, what... my, uh, my work life balance and work ethic uh, was a little skewed, but I was also living in New York uh, in the city where everybody else's work life balance is ridiculously skewed. So it was, it was the normative. Translated all work, no life. Right. So I was working at the label all day. And then I was using the money from that to grow my post-production company at night. So I would like, you know, like I'd be at the office at, at the label doing doing my, my thing. You know, I'd carve out maybe like a half an hour to an hour a day, uh, you know, like sending out emails, sending out feelers, uh, responding to, you know, Craigslist ads and the Village Voice and things like that because we had newspapers back then. I, I don't know if they still have that. But um but yeah, no, I was. What, I would, what, I was, those, what did you call them? Newspapers. Newspaper tabloids. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, you know the, the tabloid that's, that's format. What, that's, what, that's what you carry around instead of a laptop, right? A tabloid. Yeah, yeah. Well, they don't uh, they don't die on you, and they don't lose their signal in the tunnels. <laughs> but yeah, I would, so I would I would, I would I would then work at my my own post production studio uh, overnight. And what kind of stuff were you doing? Were you doing music, or were you doing voice, or or what? Uh, anything that would pay me. There uh, you mostly, go. Uh, <laughs> mostly independent films. Um, oh, mostly cool. independent films, and uh, and I did I did make some uh, I did make some albums. Um, I did a couple of like uh, I think the weirdest thing I did was a Japanese loke job where I was recording the Japanese for a uh, for a braces uh, like how to brush your braces video. Um, it was awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was an incredible experience, and uh, yeah, that was uh, that was uh, that was pretty rad. I started doing the games through that. I answered an ad off Craigslist, I think, um, or or maybe somebody approached me. It was so long ago, I don't remember. And hustled my butt off, mm-hmm. got a bunch of the, like I said earlier, like a bunch of like uh, like Manhattan uh, theater types to to come through and record and do mm-hmm. crazy characters, and that uh, that sort of lit the spark for me. But so uh, it was around that time though, like uh, my uh, my my then girlfriend, my now wife, um, got uh, she. Oh no, were we married at that point? I don't even remember. That's uh, a oh man, You're, we're definitely gonna edit this. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we're definitely not gonna edit this. <laughs> the <laughs> she uh, so uh, the so the, the anyway, uh, she got me the Fat Man's Guide to Game Audio, George's book. I didn't realize that's how George came into your well, world. Well, yeah. So uh, so this all happened in a very very short window of time. Okay, time, um, time out, time out. For for those who don't know the Fat Man. 
Oh, jeez. How do you not know the fat man? Uh, so George was uh, is um, a fantastic game audio god. Um, he is one of the nicest human beings I've ever met uh, and uh, keeps that, like, you know, childhood enthusiasm for, for, for game audio throughout, you know. God, how long has he been doing this? Randy, how, how long has it been? Oh gosh, I'm. I mean, I've I've had this company for 24 years, and he predates me. Now he wasn't doing games right when we started, but still. So yeah, 30 years. I was years. playing games that he that he was making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, he absolutely. made uh, Seventh Guest, oh, and that was yeah, like a later yeah. game yep. for him, even. Um, yeah, because yeah. I got. I, I mean, I started playing games, and I was never really that big of a gamer. Um, but I did. I started playing games even before then. Um, so the two early audio guys, both of who I now know, were Martin Galway and. George Sanger. The point was that I was uh, I was really not happy working at the label. Uh, I read the book and um, hoping to extract like oh cool techniques for you know game audio that I can then use to start you know like reeling in the three people in New York that do mm-hmm. games, mm-hmm. which I did. Um, you know Arcadium and uh, and like like all these these studios that don't even exist anymore. Um, and I met some great people doing it too. But that was that was sort of the, my point though. One of the things that George's book does talk a lot about that uh, that I got so much out of was talking about the game audio community, which back then was was fairly small. And uh, and then um, oh yeah, and uh, he talked a little bit about the the conference, you know, uh, the GDC. And so I looked that up, and uh, there was a, a game developers conference happening in Austin, like a few months away from when I read the book. So I was like, all right. I'm going to I'm going to fly down to this here GDC in Austin and see what's what um see if this is a, a good fit for me 2004 something like that I don't even remember anymore mm-hmm. that sounds about right yeah that was uh, that was that was how I got into games. Uh, I read George's book and then um and then oh and I I I met George. Last thing for me just ensemble how how what and and what I say by how <laughs> because you work in the same mm-hmm. industry you know that you you fight the you fight the good fight to get yeah. it done. How? So um, that is a that is a question that I do get a lot. Um, it is uh, an incredibly nerdy answer. How good are you at spreadsheets? Is my answer. Um, how good are you at crafting algorithms to pre-calculate um, best uh, combination of talent to compress time across multiple sessions? Um, how good are you at figuring out and charting how best to divide a script so that you are keeping emotional, like basically uh, meta-tagging sections of script for emotional tags to be able to keep um, session flow through those tags. Um, it's There's a lot of really nerdy pre-production work that goes into Ensemble. If you are going to start working Ensemble, that's something you have to be prepared for. Uh, you have to be the type of person who loves, loves, loves solving puzzles and also loves 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 excel <laughs> that's that's how you do ensemble and I, I know it's not the the fun like magical answer that uh that most people are looking for but for the most part mm-hmm. that's how i get to do ensemble because when i do ensemble it's not like it's it's slightly more expensive than uh than solo records but the cost benefit yep. on it is so ridiculous that um, that it's silly not to, to to put it in the equation, and uh, and that's the thing. When I do it, it's not that much more expensive. It's right. reasonable. 
So let me refer- let me rephrase my question slightly. And by the way, that was a better answer than what I'm probably going <laughs> to get from this. My my how was actually a business. How. Oh, asking people, and I throw it out all the time. And sometimes I get the chance to do it. Most of the time, the vast majority of times, like yeah, we don't have time for that. Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether the excuse is accurate or not. It's just there's such a well, we don't do it that way. And being a third party vendor, it's like okay. So how do you manage to convince clients on a regular basis? I mean, maybe at this point, just because that's what you're branded as doing. So it's like, well, no, if you come to me, this is what we're going to do. But at some point, you had to convince people to do um, it that probably were not familiar with doing it and maybe were even reluctant. So I think it's just a perfect storm of a lot of different factors, one of which being I am a, I'm a sharer. Like, I, I believe that we as a community have a duty to share our techniques with one another to share our experiences with with one another and to grow as a community Mm -hmm. as a result. Um, And that is one of those things that strongly separates us from other areas of the same industry. Like Mm -hmm. I'll talk, I mean, I live in LA. So when I talk to, you know, like, uh, like, like film and TV people, they're, blown away with uh with how much how many conferences we have how much conversation there is how much interpersonal relationship there is how much you know like um how our our brand of competition works with one another things like that are just unheard of in any other aspect of the industry and it's one of those things that as we grow as a community as we begin to uh to to swell our ranks which has been happening over the years it's one of those things that i i feel is very important to uh, cultivate and then also to uh, to encourage um, the next wave and the wave after them and the wave after them to continue. And it seems to mm-hmm. be that that's where we're heading. Mm-hmm. But I say that because um, mm-hmm. when I was the dialogue lead at 2K, I was uh, I was working ensemble a lot um, on this one project, mm-hmm. and um, I was fortunate enough to I didn't I, I didn't do like a, like a mid project um, reveal or anything like that, but I was already a regular speaker at GDC, and so I had pitched um, uh, over the years a couple of talks uh, focusing on on ensemble. Um, I did like. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a pre-production talk at MIGS and I did a uh, an ensemble workshop at GDC and things like that because that's what I'm passionate about. And that's uh, that's kind of the thing. Like if you're doing a talk at a conference, like you better be passionate about the thing you're talking about or uh, mm-hmm. or the audience yep. will know very quickly. Um, so, yes. so yeah, so I, uh, so, so I had already kind of pre-marketed myself um, as a specialist in this field just by the nature of my um, my enthusiasm for it and my outspokenness for it, you know, it didn't take too much, uh, you know, for for people to put two and two together. That it's like, oh, he's very passionate about ensemble. He's he's talking about it at the conference. He's the dialogue lead to 2K. They're probably doing this at 2K, um, which was mm-hmm. true, you know. And um, and I was able to put together a pipeline that worked for a uh, for a full scale AAA game um, to have an end to end ensemble pipe. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I started Bright Skull, 
our first clients in the door wanted that for their games. Um, so it was uh, it was already there. Like Ethan Carter came in wanting that experience, and then like yeah, we also had a couple of uh, a couple of clients early on and still today who are just like, nope, that's not what we want. We want um, we like um, I like to say like we have a we have a minimum bar of quality. Like we won't we like um, mm-hmm. you know in the in the good fast cheap triangle um, we we don't we don't. Uh, go below good. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for for the ensemble stuff, it kind of already sold itself um, by by me inadvertently pre marketing myself as an expert in that. Um, and then uh, and then yeah, then uh, Tacoma, uh, we did end to end ensemble with uh, with uh, with what I, I jokingly called faux capture, where we uh, did choreographed scenes and silent prop work and things like that. Um, we didn't actually capture any of the mm-hmm. animation data, but we just did it to give that realistic mumblecore feel that uh, that Steve wanted for the project. Sure. Um, yeah, that's uh, it's 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 always an evolving process, and um, that's what excites me about it. Like, um, you know, if you're not if you're not growing, you're dying. So uh, so that's. I don't know. So what draws you to certain actors for the style that you do and what what's a requirement? You know, what what can actors do to 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 really get themselves better geared up to play in one of um, your games? Yeah. That's a great question that a lot of people are going to want to know the answer to. Um it depends on the game and I don't mean to uh I don't mean to give a no. an evasive no, answer. Fair. It's just um, that's very fair. You know, if uh, fit the game, fit look, look at look at my sides. I spent a lot of time crafting my sides and getting them right. Um, and I've 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 gotten industry feedback that our sides are are, are a, a gold standard for the industry. So um, one of the reasons for that though is that um, you can look at our at a side that comes from Bright Skull, and you should be able to determine the the tone. The um the 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 character uh, voicings everything that you need for the audition and I, I say this when I'm advising other uh, other studios and other directors too or when I'm consulting um if your auditions are all over the place if people are giving you all sorts of different reads for a character that's your sides it's not the actors that's your sides oh yeah no agreed that no, is a great observation uh, but 100 percent true if you can't if you can't put into that what you're looking for very specifically. And, and yeah, you leave the actor's room to, you know, to give their own interpretation. But yeah, if, if you're looking for X, you better be able to describe X and say, this is what X looks like, sounds like, walks like, And do it succinctly so you're not wasting anybody's time. Yes. And that, that's, that's, I find that yep. that's, um, like, I, I take it as a given, just just a natural thing for me to to be able to uh, to, <laughs> you know, you wouldn't know it by listening to this podcast, but uh, but uh, you know, something that I that I um, do pride myself on is being able to communicate succinctly, um, and uh, and to be able to uh, to effectively in the shortest amount of space and time um, communicate what it is that I need. And I do that in my sides as well. So my sides are never more than a page for the uh, for the front. Mm-hmm. Um, usually about a half page, um, and and that's mm-hmm. mostly because of stylistic choices and artwork. I do a one paragraph at like maybe two paragraph at most bio, and it's all very 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 short sentences, and the important words are in bold. 
the yep. the reason I say that though is that's um, that's that's a huge part of uh, of the actor's responsibility is to um, is to gauge the tone of the project specifically for ensemble work though which is what you were asking I would say that the advice that I would have for auditioning actors is to um, give me an authentic read give me an uh, give me something that is not I don't want to. I, I personally, as a as a director, I don't want it to feel performed in any way, low key, authentic, and uh, and the way that I construct my sides, there should there should be room for dynamicism, there should be room for anger, there should be room for for heartfelt, there should be room for um, soliloquy, there should be room for um, for uh, for empathy. But I need it to be painted in more subtle shades um, than a uh, than a solo character piece would be painted. Yeah. Um, the reason for that being, though, that um, you know, when you are thinking about things from a uh, from a solo character perspective, um, you always want to paint in the brightest shades. You always want your character to stand out. But ensembles really only work if um, if everybody is uh, is uh, in harmony. So you can't have that uh, you, bright shining star, and that actually comes from a theater uh, thing that uh, that I learned really early on. Um, if you are doing the blocking for um, for you know a big number, um, and you're in the chorus, the chorus's job is to be the in unison foundation that the scene is built on. So if you have one member of the chorus who is extra, <laughs> that's not going to work. And that's that's sure. the same with uh, that's the same with an ensemble scene uh, in VO. If you have uh, if you have that one actor that's like you know over moding in a way that is not consistent with the rest of the cast, that's uh, that's something that we need to direct out of the scene. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Am I am I absolutely? That is amazing advice. Great direction. And well, that's why you do what you <laughs> Thank do. You. So, <laughs> <laughs> so in, in an effort to try and be a little bit succinct, we appreciate the time that you've been able to spend with us today, Michael. You have absolutely poured out your, your heart and soul. And uh, man, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much, man. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, it's been fun. It's been fabulous. Um, and now it's time to go. Randall? BT. Michael? BT. Until next time. <laughs> thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Lovely. Bye. If you enjoyed the conversation with Michael Surix, I bet right now you're trying to figure out how you can get involved in an ensemble project. I know I am. If you want to reach out to Michael, visit brightskull.com. That's B-R-I-G-H-T-S-K-U-L-L.com, just like it sounds. Let's Talk VoiceOver is hosted by Randy Ryan, owner of Hamsterball Studios, delivering the world's best talent, virtually, anywhere. And me, Brian Talbot, actor and all-around creative guy. If you have comments, questions, ideas for other show topics that you'd be interested in hearing, or you just want to let us know what you think, reach out to us by sending an email to bt at letstalkvoiceover.com. Or go to our website at www.letstalkvoiceover.com. That's www.letstalkvoiceover.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Not really sure why, but once in a while we do post something. So, thanks for listening to Let's Talk VoiceOver, and we'll talk again real soon.